I'd like you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 14. And while you're turning there, let me take you back to a time when communication between people wasn't necessarily instantaneous, uh, where the primary means of the news came via either newspaper that was delivered to our front door or a, an ancient antique thing called a mailbox. And uh, that mailbox was filled with more than just junk mail and coupons and that sort of thing. We used to go out and get the mailbox every day. There'd be a stack of letters in there. Some of them were personal. Some of them were bills. But every now and then, when you look through that stack of letters, there'd be that one letter that looked really official and had stamps on it, etchings and special tape on the back. And it said on the front, uh, this for exclusively for Leslie Farrell. And, and there, there was this, well, I wonder what this is. And you'd open it up, and there'd be uh, four or five different pages in there. The front page always said, you may have already won. And then there was this list of things that you may have already won. You know, it was a, a new home, a new car, an island in the Caribbean, and, yeah, you know, all these fabulous things you may have won. And all you had to do, all you had to do was enter this sweepstakes, send us your name, and put these stamps on something or grab this corner or something like that to find out if you want. And the incredible thing about that is I used to get excited over those things until I realized that when they said you may have already won, they've already picked the winners. And maybe I have one, but I don't think putting this sticker on that is going to make me a winner. It might be able to help them identify me, but I don't think it's going to make me a winner. And I, I, I kind of got to the point where I longed for the day when I opened up one of those letters and said, you haven't won anything. We had a sweepstakes. We had a bunch of people in it. We picked the winners. You didn't get anything, but we hope you buy our magazines anyway. Uh, at least there would have been some honesty in that. Okay? But it was an event to receive one of these letters. I got to tell you something. The letter of Colossians is something like that note that we used to get in the mail. So it, it, it's, it's a letter that says, you've won. You are qualified. Matter of fact, we're going to call our, our uh, sermon today qualified. So let me tell you a little about Colossae. Uh, it's in Turkey. Um, it's uh, kind of in the middle of Turkey. Uh, if you look on the map over there, it's down in the lower right-hand corner. Uh, one thing I hadn't noticed, and one thing to call your attention, where's Pat Newt's? There he is back there. Uh, for Wednesday night, as you lead the men through Revelation, uh, the seven churches of Revelation are within a 150-mile radius of Colossae. And uh, I, I don't know what significance that has. Uh, you can figure that out and present the guys with the answer on Wednesday night. Uh, but it, I just, when I looked at it, I said, well, there's all seven churches. Now, if you look on a map, um, Laodicea is not there. Where's Laodicea? It's exactly about 10 miles west of Colossae. And the fact is that it was a very small village and wasn't big enough to be on the particular map that I pulled up. But all seven churches are right there. Colossae is not one of those churches. And so we don't know much about the village. We don't know much about its background. We don't know why it's there. There's some ruins there that they think might be it. But, you know, it, it's not one of those towns that was on a major trade route. It wasn't necessarily significant. Uh, but we know that there was a church there. And we don't really know why the letter was written. Uh, now, we have some strong hints. Um, 
Paul writes the letter because there's some kind of teaching that is occurring in Colossae, that uh, uh, a philosophy, Paul calls it in chapter 2. Uh, we know enough about it that the philosophy practices the observance of rituals, the eating and drinking of certain foods and drinks, and uh, the observance of feasts and everything. And, and so it prescribes those, and it, it judges and condemns those people that refuse to participate in these things. Uh, so on top of all that, there's some legalism there. Uh, it prescribes an ascetic life, uh, a life of bare-bones essentials, you know. So the church in Colossae, if they were following this lessons, uh, they, they wouldn't have any cell phones. Uh, they wouldn't have any, uh, any internet connectivity. Uh, they wouldn't have any, any modern conveniences in their, in their little huts. Uh, they would live a fairly simple life. Uh, so asceticism was one of the distinguishing marks. And also there was perhaps an inordinate uh, focus on angels and visions. Uh, so they had simple life. You've got to follow these rules. Uh, heavenly beings are important and, and every now and then you're going to get some sort of special knowledge that comes to you kind of mystically. You'll have a vision or, or a dream or something like that and this will help us along our way. So Paul eventually addresses all of those things in his letter and he, he tries to, to uh, set them straight. But the picture that we get is this is a, uh, another new church um, in the area of what we call Asia, um, and it's in trouble. It's struggling with its doctrine. It's struggling with its theology, and Paul has heard about it, and the question becomes, how is Paul going to address this? Now, there are some difficulties here. We'll get into it in just a little bit, but apparently he doesn't even really know these people. He hasn't really met them. There's no record of him visiting the, the, the village, and so how, how does he handle this? Do, does he even care about what's going on? Well, we find out right away that, that he does care, and we find out because he begins by praying for them. So his prayer develops in two stages. We'll see the context of his prayer in verses 3 through 9a, the first half of 9. We'll see the, the content of his prayer in verses 9b through 14. So let's take a look at Paul's context in 3 through 9a. Just an overview, and then we'll get into the verses. He, he prays for these people that he hasn't met face to face, um, and there, there's a lesson right there. Number one, the, the first thing we see is that the body is diverse. Paul doesn't know a lot about him. He's heard some stuff, but the body is diverse, and Paul is praying. So Paul's not just praying for the church that's in front of him. He's not just praying for the churches that he's established. Maybe somebody he knows has established his church, uh, but he's praying for the entire body of Christ. He's praying for people that don't necessarily think along all the same lines that he does. And he's praying for the body of Christ. He understands how the gospel is being promulgated. He understands how it's being spread uh, north and south and east and west. And so he's praying for the entire body. And he, he wants to see that body work as an organic whole, something we just got done talking about. So there's some diversity in the body. Um, Paul is praying for him, and he's praying for people he doesn't know. Now, last week we saw that there's an appropriate prayer for people that you do know. There's a certain way to pray for them. Now, this week we're going to see how we can pray for people that we don't necessarily know. So, 
that should cover everybody in the world. Got it? The people that you know and the people that you don't know. I've got, you know, I've got a circle of friends. Everybody else that is outside that circle is somebody I don't know. We should be praying for everybody in the world. Maybe we'll do that by name someday. So he says, he's praying for them. He prays unceasingly. We see this from uh, over and over again. Pray, uh, Paul has developed a lifestyle of prayer. We talked about this last week. He's not necessarily putting a prayer shawl down and getting down on his knees and kneeling in front of his bed, but he, he is making a habit of prayer. He's making a habit of communing with God, of thinking about God, of thinking about the people around him and their relationship with God. It's constantly on his mind. He's constantly lifting it up to the, to the Father. So he prays unceasingly. They're in his heart. They're in his mind all the time. And the other thing that we see here, and, and this has become a pattern, Paul always seems to link thanksgiving with his petitions. We see Paul first give thanks, and he has to dig sometimes to do this, uh, but he says in verse 3, we always thank God. And this happens before he makes his prayer requests known. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now, they're getting this letter from Paul. He hasn't been there and they find out that not only does Paul know about them, but he has been praying for them. So right away, there's this note of encouragement, okay? And he carries it a little bit further in verse 4. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Here's Paul being an encourager. Here's Paul being somebody who builds someone up. He's not calling and saying, look, I heard you had some problems, I heard that you heard the gospel and you're distorting it. Let's get things straight, gang. He's turning and saying, look, I heard that you're believers. I heard that you're brothers and sisters in the faith. I heard that you have love for each other. There's some good things going on in Colossae, and I want to recognize them. And he's heard about these things, and they have this faith, and they have this love, and he tells them why in verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. He's saying, everything that you have and everything that you're going through that's good and every encouragement that I can give you comes from the gospel. You've heard the gospel. You've seen that the gospel can change. You're going through that transformation. Yes, there are a couple of bumps here and there. You don't have everything right. That's okay. I don't have everything right too. But the gospel is beginning to have its impact on you. And I want you to know that not only have I heard about it, but I've been praying for you. I've been praying that, that this would rise up. And then we get to verse 6, which is the, the key verse in this first section, verse 3 through 9a, where he says, that gospel which has come to you as indeed the whole world, and it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understand the grace of God in truth. He's saying the gospel that we're talking about is beginning to change lives and hearts all over the world. And as that happens, you're part of it. You're part of what God is doing in the world. People's lives are being changed because of the gospel that was brought to you. And the implication is, now take that gospel and do the same thing that somebody did for you. Share it with them. Let it go out from Colossae. 
You've seen its transformational power. Now let it work in the lives of the people around you. Maybe Laodicea, 10 miles to the west. Verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ in your behalf. This is how Paul knows of them. Paul is a beloved fellow servant who has informed Paul of what's going on in Colossae and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Epaphras has been witnessing to Paul. You should see what's going on down in Colossae. Paul's like, where? Colossae, you know. Uh, and Paul, Paul, okay, let's pray. And so, for this reason, the NIV says, and this is where Paul links his thankfulness to his petitions, from the day we heard, from the day I first heard about you, we have not ceased to pray for you. I've been praying for you as long as I have known you exist. What do you mean? Now, there, there's, the, there's the context. There's the framework for Paul's prayer. He, want, he prays for everyone in the body. He prays unceasingly. He prays beginning by giving thanks for the ones he prays for. And he acknowledges that everything worth praying for Everything that's at the core of what he prays rises up out of the gospel. Now listen carefully. You see, we have been taught that the gospel is something we do. We've been taught that the gospel is something we say. We talk about going down to the park and we think, oh, i got to go down there and tell people about Jesus Christ. Nothing wrong with that. Some of us are gifted for that, okay? Some of us have the gift of evangelism. That's fantastic. Not all of us do, okay? But we need to change our thinking because the gospel isn't something we say. It's not something we do. The gospel is the transformation that rises up out of us and puts on display the redeeming power of Jesus Christ. Now, that's kind of fancy. I like that because it sounds real spiritual. But what does that look like when we look at this congregation? What that looks like is somebody from this congregation is going to go down to the park and share Jesus Christ with somebody. But you know what? The rest of us are going to get them there. When we do these things, somebody's got to carry the chairs. Somebody's got to set up the tables. Somebody's got to make some food. Somebody's got to do some praying. Somebody's got to help us finance all this stuff. Do you see how it involves all of us? It's not just the people that are down there. It's not just the people that are talking. It's all of us working together to portray the gospel. And if we understand that, if we understand that the gospel is the way we live and the way we work with each other, then we understand that the gospel isn't something to do. We are the gospel. The way we serve others, the way we serve each other is the gospel. The world looks at this. They don't know what to do with it. People come up to Laura and go, I don't know what to say other than thank you. What have we done? All we've done is we give them a sandwich. There might be 15 people involved in putting that sandwich together and getting it down to the park. We give them a sandwich, tell them a little bit about Jesus Christ, and they say, they go, I don't know how to process this. 
This is, this is not like anything else I've learned. You bet it's not like anything else they've learned. We've got people working together to serve people they don't know. Isn't that exactly what Paul's talking about? Showing them the kingdom. The gospel is not something to do. We are the gospel, and this body is the gospel. And the only reason we exist is for the sake of of the gospel. The only reason we're here is to send that gospel. The only reason God sends us here and preserves us here is so that we can be witnesses of the gospel. We're not here to minister to ourselves on Sunday morning. We are here to be equipped and nourished and made healthy so that we can be ambassadors for the gospel out in the community. We live the gospel. Paul's prayer is for the Colossians to be the gospel. Okay. Got it. What are those prayers? We've seen the context of the prayers. What is the content of the prayers? Verse 9b through 14. 9b is the second half of 9. First thing we see is in 9b, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The first thing that Paul prays for is for them to be filled with the knowledge of his will. I love this prayer because I got to tell you something. There are times in my life when I don't know what God's will is. There are times in my life when I anguish over what God might want me to do. I've got a decision to make. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I don't know which one to do. I'm asking people to pray for me. Pray for me. I need to make a decision. I I want to know God's will. The first thing that Paul prays for these people is that they might be aware of what God's will is. Do you realize what an encouragement that would be? You know, I know it's a tough decision, but somebody's praying for me, and I know God's will, so this is what I'm going to do. Now, now Paul, Paul doesn't just leave it there. He prays for God's will with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So the will that he is asking to be revealed to the Colossians will be in harmony with the scriptures and with their understanding of the scriptures. It's not just some mystical, gee, I got a funny feeling. I've got goosebumps on the back of my neck. I think God's speaking to me. So it's going to be in harmony with all of the teaching that they received when they received the gospel. And so why do they want to do that? So as to walk in a manner, watch this, because see, I think when God reveals his will to me, it's so that I can have an easier life. I think it's so that I can make the right decision. So that I can look and go, see God, I did a good job. I listened to you, right? Okay, so Paul calls for God to reveal his will to the Colossians so that, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will and spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. God reveals his will so that we can be a blessing to him, so that we can be a sweet aroma. It's the same kind of phrasing in here, to God. So that we can turn it back to him and give him praise and give him glory. Now, I like that. I want to please my father. There's something deep down inside of me. And if you're a believer, there should be something deep down inside of you that wants to please the father as well. But I don't always know how to do that. I'm not always fully cognizant of what steps I might go through to please the father. 
Paul, I love Paul because he never ever leaves you, you hanging. He never ever says, well, please the Father and everything will just be fine. And me standing here going, ah, wait a minute, Paul. What does that look like? Paul always comes in behind and says, here's what it looks like. So what does it look like? In verse 10, we, it looks like bearing fruit in every good work. Now, the good works we're talking about here are good and godly works. They're being productive, productive for the glory of God, productive for the sake of the gospel, productive for the sake of his name. So we're called to bear fruit. That pleases God when we bear fruit. We're called to grow in the knowledge of God. Now, I love this because if we're going to grow in the knowledge of God, again, we're not talking about warm fuzzies. We're not talking about private revelation. We're not talking about some angel coming out of the sky and writing something on a wall. We're talking about conforming to the word, the character and nature of God as we see in the scriptures. That's where the full knowledge of God, as full as we're going to get, rises up. It is out of the scriptures. So if we're going to grow in our knowledge of God, then we're going to have to grow in our knowledge of scripture. That means we have to read our Bible. Well, you know what? Not all of us are very good at that. Have you ever had that, that period of time, that maybe a drier period where you sit down and read your Bible and all you can do is fall asleep? Some people have a difficult time reading. Some people can't read at all. How do they grow in the knowledge of God? Well, you find a group of people that teach the Word. You find a group of people that gather together on Sunday mornings and turn their focus on Jesus Christ and have a high value of the Word. And you plug into that group of people. You find a church that is word-centered, Christ-centered. You know, we, we try to make every effort to equip people with the word. I mean, you see it in our service. We sing the word. We catechize the word. We preach the word. We read the word. But it doesn't stop there. We've got, we've got Bible-based studies on Wednesday night for men and women, Revelation and Ephesians. We've got a Bible-based study on Tuesday morning for the ladies. Every class, every Sunday school class we have is based on the Word. Sometimes it's a book, but the book's based on the Word. So you can get a steady diet of the Word of God without actually having to sit down and read it. Now, I want to recommend to you that you read the Word, but if you're suffering under some incapability to read the Word, there are other ways for it to happen. This is why God puts us together as a body, so that we can do this together. So that those who can teach it use their gifts to bless those who maybe can't teach but know how to do something else. So one of, one of Paul's prayers is we grow in our knowledge of God and that we be strengthened by his power. I love that. I want power. I want to be a superhero. I hope I get a cape when I get the power so people can see that I have the power. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Verse 11. Strengthened by his power, look at this, for endurance and patience. Did you check that out? This church is struggling. They're going through some errant teaching that's beginning to influence them. And Paul prays for power to come upon them 
by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit so that they can endure, so that they can endure the trials that they suffer, so that they will develop patience, not just with each other, but with others outside the body of Christ. As, as we found out last week, patience is a godly virtue. We're supposed to be patient with each other because God has been patient with us. We're supposed to endure those things that we go through because it's an expression of love, and love is an attribute of God. So the power is not there to make us superheroes, no cape. It's there to help us endure, to help us develop patience. And to cap it all off, he says, he prays for them to joyfully give thanks to the Father. So there's the content. We saw the context. Here's the content that he prays that they'll know God's will. He prays that they will please God by bearing fruit, by growing in their knowledge, by being strengthened for endurance and patience, by joyfully giving thanks for all things. I like that. I think Paul's given some pretty practical stuff. But look at this. Here's why he wants these things for them. Watch this. Verse 12. 12b, give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, now watch what just happened. He said, here are the things I'm praying for you. Give thanks to God who has qualified you. I know that I've just asked you to do some hard stuff. I'm praying difficult things for you. And you might see this as kind of difficult, particularly given your situation here, but understand something. God has already equipped you. God has already qualified you. This is the letter. This is the stamp with the special tape and your name on it. You open it up. It doesn't say you may have already won. It said you already won. You don't have to make this happen. You don't have to strive for this. All you have to strive for is God himself, and he will qualify you to do all of those things that he's called you to do. All you got to do is step out in faith and believe him. There's no doubt the sweepstakes has been decided. You've been chosen as a winner. It's a done deal. You're qualified. You're qualified and enabled. Now, I like that. I like that that God has already given me all that I need to be able to walk in a manner worthy of my calling, to do those things that please Him. But there's more, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of, beloved, of His beloved Son. Do you understand what that means? And if, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you believe he's the only son of God, if you have confessed your sins, repented of them, turned towards his righteousness, then you are in his kingdom. You're not in process. You're not going to get there someday. You're already there. You've been taken out of darkness and put in the light. Not only are you qualified, you're saved and saved for good. Your destiny is assured. That's a done deal as much as you're qualified. You not only won, you just won the grand prize. Isn't that better than an island in the Bahamas? And just to make sure they've got it right, 
He says, his beloved son, verse 14, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. If you've made that move, not only are you qualified, but you're redeemed. You're forgiven your sins. I love this. You know, he brings us into this room to hear these things so that we can leave this room and tell other people. And that seems like a burden, but you know what? We're already qualified. Whatever God's given you to do, whatever gift you have, baking cookies, carrying chairs, giving, praying, being an encourager, arranging the forks in the kitchen, that gift is there so that this gospel can be proclaimed to the entire world. This is what it means to be a body. This is what it means to go beyond the walls. All of us working together for the glory of God, bearing fruit which pleases Him and gives Him glory and says to the world, I've been redeemed and forgiven. It's a done deal The work on the cross is finished. God sees me through the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and he can see you the same way. And then you will be qualified. You will win the grand prize. Brothers and sisters, you are qualified, not by anything you've done, not by anything you're doing, not by anything you will do, but by what God has done, by what he's done. That work is done in you. If you are born again, if you are regenerated, that's done. Okay. We've got a few extra minutes. Let's go a little bit deeper with this. So we are to pray in a similar fashion that Paul prays. Pray for people we don't know. Pray for people we know. Give thanks for them. Understand that if they're in the body of Christ, that they're qualified just like we are. That's, that's not insurmountable. I can do that. What about the people that are closer to you? We talked about this last week. What about the people that are difficult in your life? What about the people who have hurt you? What about the people who have disappointed you? What about the people who have not met your expectations? You see, if they are believers in Jesus Christ, then they are qualified too. The same way you were qualified by nothing more than the grace of God. And we're called to pray for them the same way we pray for people we don't know. We're called to be thankful. Sometimes we've got to sit and think about what we're going to be thankful about in this person. Okay? But Paul knows enough about the Colossians to be thankful that the love of God is in them. Why? Because God has promised that the love of God would be in them. So we pray thanks And then we pray 
these blessings to know the will of God, to grow in the knowledge of God, to bear fruit for God, to give joyful thanks in all things for God, to be strengthened by his will so that, so that they can endure and be patient. And while we pray that, we pray that God would pray, have somebody praying the same thing for us. Context and content of Paul's prayer. Now you can see, you can see if Paul's taking these things into consideration, this is how Paul prays without ceasing. He's constantly in communion with the Father. And it's not, it's not that Paul's so hyper-spiritual. It's that Paul needs to be in communion with the Father in order to be able to pray like this. He needs to be constantly saying, Father, help me. Father, show me what I can pray for with these people. Father, show me which people to pray for. Help me be thankful. Help me to pray for them to be thankful. Uh, now, some of these people that we're running into in Paul's prayers have hurt Paul. You know, Thessalonians. Uh, so, and, but Paul still got that same attitude of prayer, constant communication with the Father, constant posture of prayer, a life that is characterized by submission to the Father and looking to him, praying without ceasing. It's the only way we can do it. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for Paul's wisdom. Thank you for his humility, Father. We thank you, Father, that you are a great God who has enabled Paul to be able to express the truth of your word in this manner. But you're the same God that has enabled us. Father, you've qualified Paul and you've qualified us. We pray that we might walk in those qualifications. We might walk in his enablements, Father, that we might begin to live the gospel, not just share the gospel, but to be the gospel, Father, to be that evidence of transformation available to a world that desperately needs to be changed, desperately needs to be saved, Father. We pray that we would put you on display in all that we say and we do and that we would give thanks to our great God. In Jesus' name. Amen.